You guys can go ahead and have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, I want to w- welcome you and invite you to open them to the book of Exodus chapter 12. That's be bringing a sermon from that passage this morning. I truly uh, just get excited as I begin my week looking at the reading plan that I'm going to be reading, that my people are going to be reading, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's just an awesome uh, thing. And if, again, I, I don't want, I'm going to shamelessly continue to plug this. Now, if you're not part of the reading plan, you, why not? It's definitely not too late. It's never going to be too late. Get in the reading plan and uh, get up to date with us. It will definitely be a privilege and a, and a pleasure for you as we continue to walk through Scripture together as a church. Um, I, I just know that God will answer our, question, or, uh, our request of uh, both spiritual growth and unity as a body. So uh, t- today we begin um, our second uh, look at the promised land study. And so uh, just last week we began by looking at the fact that God both sees and knows his people. He, knows, he sees where they're at and he knows their struggle. Obviously if he sees, he knows, but this knowing is like this intimate level that he knows exactly what they're going through. He knows exactly the struggles that they face. He knows the pain that they feel, the sadness, the loss. He knows it all. Incidentally, he knows their joys, their, the things that they celebrate. He's right there with them. For 400 years, it was difficult maybe to believe that. And yet, at that time, when God comes at his appointed time to Moses and he says, Go and set my people free, he went and he conf- he, Moses confesses, This is what the Lord has done. This is what the Lord is doing. The people celebrate. And here, this morning, we look at actually the, me- the mechanism that God uses to actually set his people free. Actually, God strikes Egypt with all of his power. You'll remember last week, at, as we talked about, the, the Bible will oftentimes will talk about the hand of somebody. That is the symbol for their power. And God stretches out his hand and smites Egypt. He, he strikes them with all of his power. He actually uh, sends them ten separate plagues. God is punishing them in those plagues for a few things. He's doing a few things in that. Number one, he's punishing them for mistreating uh, his people. That's number one. That's the first thing that he's doing. He's also uh, sending these plagues so that he can rescue his people. I think one of the most beautiful things that we often miss that God is actually doing in this moment, in this time, and in this season as he strikes Egypt with these plagues is he's attacking the gods, the so-called gods of the people of Egypt. In verse 12 of chapter 12, it says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Oftentimes, I've missed that. The Lord strikes Egypt, specifically these gods. These these plagues, each of them are an affront. They're each an attack on an Egyptian god, and maybe even more than one of them. And so the plague of blood was an attack on the river god of the Nile. The, The sending of the frogs defeated the frog goddess of Egypt. In the end of that, if you'll notice, all the frogs died. Uh, the locusts defeated the field god of the harvest. The, the darkness defeated the Egyptian sun gods and so forth and so on. And each time a plague came, one god at least bit the dust in the eyes of the Egyptians. And each was shown powerless. That's helpful in the life of a Christian as we consider the, what the Lord has done in defeating these Egyptian gods. Let me just ask you as we begin our time this morning. What, what, what kind of God is there in your life, a false God that's in your life right now, that you're tempted to, to worship, that you're tempted to give yourself over to? Maybe it's money, maybe it's sex, maybe it's power, whatever it is. We'll see, you've seen, that just as God defeated the gods of Egypt, he's defeated those gods as well, and proven that they are, in fact, no God at all. 
What joy that we have this morning as we look at the fact that our Lord is a warrior. Our God is a, he's a warrior. So not, as, as we go down through all the, God, all the gods being defeated, we get down to this last one. What was the, the tenth plague? What was it attacking? Which god was it defeating? Which deity? Well, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's oldest son was actually considered to be a deity himself. And the Passover took the life of that god, so-called. And not only uh, was the tenth plague, the Passover, not only was it an attack on the Egyptian god, Pharaoh, and his son, but it was also an attack on the Egyptian god Men, uh, who is the god of reproduction. Also the, an attack on Isis, the, well, a different a, a god, uh, the goddess of love who attended women at childbirth. Uh, and their so-called work of giving life was undone in Egypt as the Passover took place. So this is quite a feat that God would systematically just break through the Egyptian and all their gods. And he gets Pharaoh to the point whose heart was so hardened that he gets to the point where he speaks and says, Leave Egypt. Get out of here. And then the exodus actually begins at that moment. The, the exit begins. And it's of such profound um, importance in the life of the Israelites that at that moment, that, that exodus, that Passover marked the beginning of their year. It kind of reset the whole deal. God said, this is the beginning. This is the focal point of your life. This is the focal point of you as a people as you exit Egypt and enter into the promised land or begin your journey in towards the promised land. So it's basically their, their, their new year. And I want to, as I like to do typically, I want to address anybody here this morning that would maybe be just struggling to believe some of this stuff. You might say, I, I'm not sure where, uh, where I'm at on this. I don't know if this actually took place. Uh, oftentimes, uh, critics will say, hey, th- there's no record of the Exodus in any extra-biblical account. It's just not there. If you look in Egyptian records, uh, there's no account of the, of the Hebrews leaving a mass number after, being, after Pharaoh and his armies were decimated through the plagues and the, and, and, and the riders and the horse being thrown into the sea. We don't see that. And, and what I would uh, offer for you this morning is this. The, the man who wrote the history books in those days oftentimes worked for the man. He worked for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would uh, not, over his dead body, was he going to let somebody write something um, that would put, shed him in a, in a false light, in a, in a bad light. And so oftentimes when they would build these big um, monuments to themselves and talking about how great they are, uh, oftentimes uh, they were embellishments. And definitely they weren't going to include anything about how they had been defeated and how all their gods had been proven false and weak and, and powerless. And so just uh, something for, to, to consider if you're struggling with that today. I just want to address you. And by the way, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I want to just let you know you're welcome here. We're, we're glad that you're here, and we want to invite you to look and see what we love in, in the Word of God, and maybe even perhaps you'll meet the God whom we worship. So while Pharaoh wanted to show himself off, it was his goal to do that and to, to not put in history books what all the, the bad things that had happened to him. That's not what God's doing. And God's, God's reason for striking Egypt is not to show that he is a big, bad, tough guy. It's not his goal at all. His motivation is quite different uh, than Pharaoh. It's not a selfish one at all. As a matter of fact, God, in his attack on the Egyptian gods, is actually working evangelistically. He's actually working to reach out to the Egyptians and to the Israelites who were not anemic, who had, not been, who had been susceptible to this false idolatry. And so God, in his evangelistic uh, outreach, begins to de- demonstrate that he is God. That he alone, Yahweh, the one who exists, that he alone is powerful. And again, as he systematically just destroys the Egyptian gods. So if, I want to just encourage you, the, the Israelites were not the only ones in the story who were enslaved. They, although they were, they were in, 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 in chains, 
The Egyptians were as well. They were serving a false god, a god that is not true at all. If, if you think about it, who was to be pitied in this situation? The Israelites had hope. The Israelites were serving a god that did exist. And the Egyptians, as things went well for them, and they blindly followed a god and many gods that didn't exist, they were more to be pitied. They were more enslaved, actually, than the Israelites were. But God, in his mercy, reaches out to both the Israelite and to the Egyptian. And this is God's desire that all people would come to the, knowledge, the saving knowledge of the truth. And a large part of that truth is the fact that he is actually the only God that even exists. Yahweh. He and he alone. One of the meanest things, by the way, that we could do is to not contest the false claims of the loved ones and the folks that we know. One of the worst things, one of the most unloving things that we can do is to let them go through their life believing lies. Having a grip, grip, gripping on to truth that is, in fact, not truth. Quite the opposite. So one of the most loving things that we can do is to confess the truth. This is what God is doing. He's extending his love to both the Egyptians and his mercy to the, to the, to the, or to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. So one by one, God shows the weakness of the Egyptian gods. Horus, you can't even make the sun rise. Maybe you know who Horus is. You've you've seen a picture of him. He's an interesting-looking god. Uh, But he says, you can't even make the sun rise. Boom, roasted. You you got nothing. Uh, Mr. River God, uh, Mr. Coombe, you can't can't even keep the river from looking red. Boom, roasted. He, he, He just systematically goes down through and destroys them. And the ultimate purpose of all the instructions that were both given throughout the Uh, throughout the plagues and then also through the Passover that we'll read here in just a moment, all of them were pointing towards Christ. Every single one of them. They were all pointing to the power of Christ. The fact that he would come and fulfill the proto-evangelion, the the first mention of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So the the Passover points to that. It points to, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now and it's replaced the Passover, all of these things, they all point to the fact that we have been, as Christians, united to God and his body. Everything points back to Christ. Think about this. Think about our memory verse. So many of you, let's, at the risk of embarrassing you, if, if, you're, if, you, rev, if you memorize the, the verse this week, go ahead and just throw your hand up real quick. We got a few, we got a few here, yeah? I would encourage you, what, what is it? It's, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That was weak. Next week, you'll have another, you'll have another chance. But yeah, John 1, verse 29 says, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. This morning, as we look at the Passover, look at the, the Passover lamb that the, the, the Israelites had, it all foreshadows, every bit of that foreshadows the Christ that, that came, which is our Passover lamb. And I hope at the end of the message this morning, as we partake in communion this morning, that you, like John, with me, together as a united body, will look to Christ, look to the cross, and we'll say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Before we go any farther, I want to just invite you to read with me Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read a a, a pretty large chunk. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 32. Let's begin. The Bible says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor <clears throat> shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can, t- can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. 
And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at, tw- uh, at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lentils of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. But you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day, on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought you, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt." Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats that what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all of your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread." And then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the flock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, Go out for my people, both you and all the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, and as, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for this opportunity that we have to gather this morning 
to look at your word. And we pray that as we do, that you would challenge us. You would show us something from your word, even this morning. Father, we need it. This is our daily bread you've given to us. So as we look at it, Spirit, would you enlighten us? Would you challenge us? Would you grow us? Father, would you fulfill our request to unify us here on your word, on the basis of it? Father, our only hope is in you. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we walk through the most dangerous place in the world, the sea, followed by the most dangerous army in the world, the Egyptians, we know that you will keep us safe, that you will fight for us. We pray that you would now in this, in this battleground of truth and for truth, we pray that those who are far from you this morning will be drawn near. And those that are near you will be protected. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. So God had given the Israelites a way to receive forgiveness for their sins via this Passover lamb. So God, as he strikes the Egyptians, he, he, he protects them through the Passover lamb. So he gives them very clear instructions. And I want to walk through these instructions uh, just from the, from the start to the end and look first at the method. And after we look at the method, we're going to look at the meaning. There's quite a bit of information there with the meaning, but let's start with the method. First, look at verses 3 through 14. There's tons of information there with specific instructions to how the Israelites were to observe and participate in this Passover celebration. The detailed instructions included um, what kind of animal they should select for the the sacrifice, when they were to slay it, what they were to do with the blood, specifically how they were to cook it, what they were to do with the leftovers even is specifically addressed here. How they were to dress for the meal was even spelled out very clearly here. The attitude that they were to have while they were eating it is very clear here. And even what the shed blood represented was, was clearly stated here. God is very clearly determining and, and, and throwing out a method by which they can receive forgiveness. By, a method by which they can approach God. And I'll point out to you that this, that stands in contrast to the attitude to many of us. That God would clearly identify how we are to approach him stands in the face of, of what we prefer, right? We want to approach God on our own terms, and we're tempted even to create God in our own image. Uh, God created us in his image, right? And then it said that man repaid the favor. Now we've created a God in our image, the God that we would like to serve, the God that gives these types of rules and not these. And we've identified things that we do want to believe, that we do want to, to serve, and we've disregarded the things that we don't we've we've decided many of us that we'll approach God on our own terms I know that's true of me at many points in my life while this is something that God has given me this is something that he has set before me I side skirted I go around and, and do my own thing we see this in the life of Cain and the life of Abel they both uh, before God are required to give a sacrifice and what does what does Cain do well, Cain says, what you've given to me, what you've told me to do, that's, that's good and well, but I'm going to do this because this fits me better. And I think this is even a better sacrifice, and yet God had not asked for it. His sacrifice was rejected, and what, was, what happened to Abel's? Abel's was accepted. Cain, maybe you've had a similar thought to Cain. I know this is what God has asked for, but instead of giving him this, I'm going to give him this. Instead of doing this, I'm going to do this. Instead of going here, I'm going to go there. Maybe you're even there this morning. I ask you, church, just to consider this your own life. Is there a place in your life where you've said, God, I know that this is what you have for me, but this is what I'm going to do anyway? Maybe you don't even go that far. You just say, this is what you've, this is what you've asked me to do. And then there's no action. There's no follow through. Is there an area in your life, even right now, where you'd say, that's me, that's, that's true of me? 
a warning for you this morning in kindness and, and, and beside of you is this, that God does not just accept any old worship. He's not just happy to get from you whatever he can. Oftentimes that's how we paint God out to be, that he's just happy that we greeted him today and that we gave him something. And yet that's not how our holy God, the holy God that we worship, that's not how he receives worship. He receives it in the way that he's asked. So have you presumptuously approached God on your own terms, assuming that he will be glad to get whatever he can get? Not true. It's not true. Any time that we uh, approach God with an altered instruction, we render the sacrifice that we offer unacceptable. Unacceptable. The way that we approach God must be done on his terms. And the Israelites here, they had to observe the Passover correctly. And if they didn't, if they didn't, then it, was, it wasn't accepted. It, wasn't, it, didn't, it didn't work. It wasn't worth anything. I want to point out, here's the reason why. Did that land, did that sacrifice, that, that little uh, that bowl of blood, did that meal that they ate there, did that save anybody? Did that fix anything? Not in and of itself. There's no power in a lamb. There's no power. But the, the power is in the faith in God's word. So when God gives us instruction, when God tells us something through his word, when we place our faith in that, that's where the power is. Faith in the action, obedience, that's where the power is at. And so we, we notice that we have, to, we have to approach God on his terms and the way that he has laid out for us. But I also want you to encourage you to notice this, that the focus of this entire celebration is centered on the lamb. The focus of the entire celebration, it's, it's centered on the lamb. This is what they're to be doing when they uh, sacrifice. This is the kind of lamb. This is the, the, the way that they're to cook it. This is the way that they're to eat it. This is what the, the attitude that they're to have while they're eating it. it. It's all focused on the lamb. If your worship of God is in any way focused on, on anything but the lamb, then you're wrong. If it's focused on anything but God himself, who is the lamb, the lamb of God, then you're wrong. You're out of line. We talked about this just the other day with, with the life of Moses. We saw that Moses was focusing on himself and serving God. And oftentimes as we worship God, we focus on ourselves as well. well what are we getting out of it? Do we like the music that's being sung? Do we, do we like the way the lights are? I don't like them. They're a little bit bright on me right now. But it's not about me. What is it about? It's about the lamb, right? But we oftentimes make worship of God about us. We, we like this or we don't like that. It's not the focus here. As, as God li- lines out the, the Passover, the focus is, notice, the lamb. It's all about the lamb. It's all about Christians. It's all about Jesus. So when the Israelite would take that perfect lamb and he'd sacrifice it and place the blood on the doorpost and eat the meat while dressed for a journey, God was pleased with them. That destruction would pass over them. And so the the method was very important, to be very specific. The imagery is so vivid in this passage as well. As you look at the method, you think, well, why why would God say to do this? Why would God say to do that? And Some things are quite obvious, but others are are a little obscure. So as we consider the method, I want to look at the meaning of all the things that, uh, that God has laid out here. Why would, he, why would he say this or why would he say that? But before we do that, I want to point this out to you. The Passover that God instates here for the Israelites, is it, it, one of his main focuses for the children of Israel are that they remember this truth. God does a miracle. He's done a miracle nine times before. Nine different miracles, defeating the gods. And on the 10th one, it's so amazing that it actually springs them out free from the grip of Pharaoh. 
And God has accomplished everything that he said he would do, everything he set, set out to do. And he didn't want them to soon forget that. He didn't want them to slip back into idolatry. He didn't want them to slip back into to self-worship or self-pity. And so he reminds them, hey, this is important. On verse, in verse 14, he said, this shall be for you a memorial day. In verse 17, he says, therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In verse 24, he says, you shall observe this, as a right, uh, this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Don't forget this. This is amazing. You've got, to, you've got to continue to celebrate this. And I love verse 26. It says, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this? Why, are we, why do every year we do this? Why do we celebrate the Passover together? Why do we eat this lamb and roast it with fire? Why do we do it this way? Give the opportunity for the Father to say, this is why. Because the Lord had rescued us. And the Lord fought for us. The Lord provided a lamb for us. So in the yearly Passover for the last thousands, a few thousand years, uh, parents were expected to teach their own children its meaning. It became a customary for the youngest child in that, in that Jewish family to prompt their father asking for an explanation. Daddy, why do we do this? That, that every year at Passover, the youngest in the family would ask, Dad, why do we do this? And the father would have an opportunity to instruct his child and fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. God wanted the Israelites as a people to never forget what he had done for them. He had done a, a miracle for them. He didn't want the parents to forget. He didn't want the children to forget. And so I want to ask you, parents, just a moment. If you're a parent in here, I want to just talk to you for a minute. So look at this passage in Deuteronomy 6. I'm challenged by it. There's two things. We're to have, we're to have the law of God on our hearts. And we're to have the law of God on our lips. I want to just ask you, do your children, are they excited? Do they know that you're excited? Let's say it that way. Do your children know that you're excited about what God has done for you? Let me ask you this. Do your children even know what the Lord has done for you? Just the other day I was talking to one of my kids and they said, I didn't know that about you, Dad. It, wasn't, it was some obscure fact or truth about me in the past and that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it's not a big deal. But they said, I didn't know that. Would, would it be true of you that your, your children would say of you, parents, that they didn't know about your faith in God or what God had done for you in the past? What God has done in our lives should be on our, our heart and it should be on our lips. What is on our heart will be on our lips. And so I want to challenge you, parents, that, that you would make the worship of God, that you would make the, the work of God in the, in the past, you'd make that be on your heart and on your lips regularly. I love how it says, you shall teach them to your children, talk of them when you're sitting in the house, uh, when you're walking by the way, when you're riding in your van. It doesn't say that, but when you lie down and when you rise, we're talking about the things that God has done. We're worshiping God together. So the Passover was a very special time indeed, but uh, what was all the symbolism there? We know that it's important. God didn't want them to forget that. He didn't want to, we didn't want them to forget the Passover and what it meant. But what did it mean? I want to start with the death of a lamb. This is a very serious passage. Maybe as you consider, uh, maybe you consider this passage this morning and you begin to think about the, the, the imagery here. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is not what I wanted to hear on a Sunday morning. Some uh, beautiful white lamb 
being killed and used as a sacrifice. I don't want to hear that. This, we say things like, I'm dead serious. Are, 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 are many things more serious than death? Right? We say, oh, I'm dead serious on this one. Why? Because death is, death is very serious. So as we look at this passage, we look at the death of this lamb, it, it hurts us. We ask questions like, did he live? Was she okay after we hear a story? Why? Because we, we want to know, is, is death a part of this equation? The death of the lamb, though, it, it, it points us to two main things. I'm going to point them out to you this morning. First is that God hates sin. That God hates sin. In this culture, in this day and age, that's something that we want to forget very quickly. We want to forget that God hates sin. And we begin to recreate God in our own image. And we say, well, if, the, if God is loving, then he would not hate sin. He, he would make all things like death not true anymore. And he, he wouldn't do this or he wouldn't do that. God would never be angry. He's, he's just open and affirming. He welcomes us all in whether we, we're wrong or not. And what we've done in that moment is we've recreated God. We've said, I won't worship a God that hates sin. I'll only worship a God who's loving. And what, what have we done in that moment? Well, we've, we've created a new God. We've said, this is the God that I worship. This is the how I will worship God. And that's just not true. It doesn't work that way. But we see in the death of this lamb that God hates sin, but we also see that God loves his people. We also see that God loves his people, that he would provide a lamb for them. He, he hates their sin, but he provided a way for them to be rescued and to become clean. He, he, by the way, this is a truth that was open for the Egyptians as well. One of the things that you might have noticed, I know in my D group we noticed this on, on Friday morning, that many of, uh, of the troops or the, of the people that left Egypt, many of them were actually not Israelites. They had seen the gods be decimated in Egypt. They had seen the, the work of Yahweh. And what did they do? They joined the band. They said, we don't want to be, we don't want to be caught up worshiping this, these false deities. We want to worship the true God, where God has promised to lead his people. And so they begin to do that. God hates sin and he loves his people. Just as the plague will result in the death of a firstborn in every house in Egypt, Israel is given instructions for a lamb to be sacrificed on behalf of every household. It's a beautiful picture here. The death of the Lamb of God uh, symbolizes his hatred for sin and his love for his people. And think about the, the fact in the New Testament where it says, Death has passed on to all of us because all have sinned. All of us. So God hates sin, but he loves his people. That's what we see in the death of the Lamb. What about the fact that the Lamb was spotless? This is interesting because this spotless Lamb, it represents innocence. It represents beauty. And as you think about the fact that they would sacrifice a male, that makes sense. In those days, as you consider livestock and raising, uh, your li- making your, your livelihood off of raising animals, you think, well, it makes sense that they kill a, a male. Why? Because well, they're good for nothing. No, because what males, once they, once they breed, they, they, can't have, uh, they, they can't give birth. They, you can't get milk from them. And so uh, oftentimes the male, it just made sense. You, you would keep all the females because they could breed, and you just keep a few males and the rest of them you could do whatever with. It didn't matter. You could, eat, you could eat those. And oftentimes that's what would take place here. And so that makes sense. But it doesn't make sense that God would say that it needed to be a spotless lamb. It doesn't make sense that it would need to be a pure lamb. It doesn't make sense that it couldn't have a, a, a broken leg or it couldn't have a, a split hoof. And here's the reason why that doesn't make sense. Because none of those things affect the taste, right? If it's a, whether it's got spots on it or not, it doesn't matter. It's going to taste the same. Deer meat is deer meat, Right? 
It, it doesn't matter if it's, if, it's got, if it's piebald or if it's brown or if it's got horns or not. It, it's just, it's meat. So the fact that it, it's, uh, this animal had to be pure, that it had to be spotless, it pointed to something far greater. There's a theological truth that we need to pick out here. Is that as, as, these, as the Israelites followed the instructions regarding the, the sacrifice in faith, God would accept and spare them. If you zoom out to see the entire plan, Jesus of Nazareth, he was young at the time of his death. And not only was he young, but he also was a male. And he was perfect. He was free from defect. He was free from sin. And because he was sinless, he was able to be our Passover lamb. Because he was sinless, he was able to be our Passover lamb. What does the blood signify, though? Well, People in those days believed that the life of the flesh was in the blood. They believed that because you couldn't live without blood, therefore, that was where your life, that was the essence of life. That was the source of life. And while there's some truth in that, uh, that's where they were at. So the blood of the Passover was a symbol of the essence of the life of the lamb. So as that blood was taken, as it was collected, and as it was placed on the doorpost, it was a symbol of an exchange of one life for another. I put, with that in mind, think of Psalm 51 as David cries out. He says, cleanse me with hyssop. If you remember that passage. He's basically saying, take that hyssop, dip it in the blood of that lamb, of that spotless lamb, and, and, and put it across the door to my heart. Apply that blood to my heart. He's saying, will you exchange that Life of the Lamb, will you exchange it for my life? Life for life. His life for mine. We as Christians, we claim that passage. Even this morning we say, God, would you cleanse my heart? What we're saying in that moment, we're saying, cleanse it with the blood. His life for mine. Why was blood so important, by the way? Well, why is it so important to us today, even as Christians? Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, we have been justified by his blood. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus also suffered to make the people holy through his own blood. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, You are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And 1 John 1 says, The blood of Jesus, it purifies us from all sin. And the, Hebrew, and the writer of Hebrews says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So blood was vitally important. It had a picture here. Life for life. What was the meaning of the belt being fastened? Why did they have to, to, to have their belt fastened? They're, 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 uh, they're, they're ready to, for a, a journey here, all ready to rock. Um, why did they have to have their, their shoes on? Most Middle Eastern homes, even to this day, are not wearing shoes in their house. So why are they wearing shoes in the house? Why do they have their staff in hand? Imagine trying to eat your lamb chop while you're holding on to your, um, your, while you're holding on to your staff and you're trying to dip it in the sauce. But it, it's difficult to do, right? How, how do you eat all this food and take care of it? Why, why, what was the point of all this? It was a ready and waiting posture. It was a ready and waiting posture. They would be all dressed up, though, with no place to go. If you think about it, they're all ready to, for this journey. They've got everything that they need for a journey to, to get out of there. But you can't forget that they're actually slaves. So there's an important piece that needs to happen. There's a, a certain action that needs to take place as they sit there and wait. And that's that God would have to deliver them. You know, with nine previous plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And they weren't released. So now on this 10th one, they wait and they look to who? They look to God. 
And in faith, they're waiting and ready to go, to leave the land. Uh, they, they, can, they can't come and go as they please, and so God has to act. And so here they are in faith. It reminds me of Noah as he builds the ark, right? He's never seen rain. Never, never, he has no reason other than that God has told him to build the ark. And then in hope and in earnest expectation, he builds the ark. He's looking to God at that moment to save him. It's the same thing that the Israelites were doing. Not only that, but eating while dressed for the journey, it's, it's a picture, I think, of holy living. You know, because Egypt is actually a picture of sin. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's, it's a picture of sin. And so as the Israelites stand there around that table and they eat their meal quickly, the Lord's Passover, with the staff in hand and ready to go on this journey, it's a picture of holy living. They're saying, God, we are done with this place. While we are here in the presence of sin, we do not want to be here any longer. We've had our fill of this land. We don't want these gods. We don't want this food here. We don't want these houses. We want the place that we want the, we want the, the, the land that you have given to us, that you've promised to us. So they're eating, ready to go. It's a picture of holy living. I challenge you this morning, is that how you live your life? Waiting on the Lord, looking for him, looking for him to come and to, to rescue us from this body of death, as the Israelites were in those days. The Israelites were saying, Any time, Lord, I've grown weary of this place. I don't want any more. What about the unleavened bread here? The unleavened bread, it points to a speedy departure. If you think about it, uh, they would make their bread a big staple of their lives, making the bread every day. And as they made it, they needed to rise. If you wait for it to rise, you can get this nice, good, fluffy bread. It won't be like a rock. But if you don't wait, what happens? If it doesn't rise, then you've got unleavened bread. And when you don't have time to wait, you say, well, let's just cook it and and go. That's what takes place here. It's a picture here. They didn't have time to cook the bread. They didn't have time to wait for it to rise. And so they just cooked the bread in the state that it was in, flat as a footer. And they eat it and they get out of there. And so it's a picture of a speedy departure. It's also a picture of just, again, of waiting in faith. Think about a young lady who says, all I want is to be a mom. That's all I want. She lives her entire life. She's waiting on Mr. Right, and Mr. Right doesn't get in a hurry. And, but finally, she meets Mr. Right, and they get married, and now she's like, I, I, just, I want to be pregnant. I want to have a child. So she waits, and she waits, and finally she, she's pregnant. Now she has to continue waiting. Right now, the nine months, waiting for that, for that child to be delivered, for that gift of God to be given. And now for nine months, it's wait, chill. Go to doctor's appointments. It's not time yet. Wait. And then all of a sudden, just in, a, just in a twinkling of an eye, it's hurry, hurry, hurry. Get the bag. Start the car. Pack the car seat. Call your mom. Head to the hospital. Wait. You better wake up Mr. Wright. He needs to be there too, right? So she goes back and she gets her husband. It's just this hurry, the rush. All of a sudden, it's time to go. That's what the Israelites were experiencing. They've been waiting for 400 years for the Lord to rescue them. And now it's time. It's time to go. The truth here is this, that when the Lord calls, when the Lord says it's time, it's time. When the Lord begins to move, when the Lord begins to work, it's time. He doesn't work on our time. He doesn't work on our timetable. And when we think it's time, the, wor- the Lord works in his own time. So the meal was eaten in haste, the, the Lord's Passover. It's not a typical meal at all. And it had tons of symbolism here. As we continue to move forward here, we'll work quickly. The gods of the Egyptians, do they symbolize anything? Do they represent anything? Well, we've already talked about that. They represent the, the idols of God's people. And God in his grace defeats them and shows them powerless. So I'd push that to you again. What, what are the idols in your life that you would say, these things have crept in front of God. These things have eclipsed God. 
And I'm treating them as gods. I'm treating them as powerful. What, what's crept into your life? What type of sin is it that the Lord is trying to remove, that he's trying to demonstrate has, should not have power in your life? Again, is it the God of pleasure, the God of money, the God of self-serving? Whatever it is. What do the bitter herbs represent? They represent two things. The bitter death of the lamb. So it's a hard road to be a lamb at Passover. Yet this lamb has endured this transition, this, this transaction. My life for his. The bitter, the bitter death of the lamb. And it's also, uh, the bitter herbs also represent their bitter time in Egypt. It had been a, it'd been a hard time there. Um, and so this bitter herbs was a reminder that, hey, Egypt is tough. The time that you spent in Egypt is tough. As we'll see in a few, even this week, we'll begin to see how the children of Israel no sooner get out of Egypt than they begin to falsely remember how good they had it in Egypt. Oh, if we could just go back. The bitter herbs here, they're a reminder, hey, your time in Egypt was very bitter. It was not a pleasant time at all. As we already saw, Egypt is a picture of sin, and only God can rescue you from that. If you're here this morning and you're trapped in sin, you're wrestling with it, whether it's a sin that nobody else knows about or maybe it's an obvious one that many know about. The truth that we see here this morning is this, that only God can rescue. Only God can get you out of Egypt. So we looked at their Passover. We looked at the method quickly, how they were to do this and all the meanings behind how they were to observe the Passover. That's their Passover. I want to transition quickly and move into our Passover. We've already shown, we've already discussed the fact that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing as we remember that the Passover was a foreshadowing of Christ. Remember, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so we see the deep meaning of the Passover. We see the killing of the lamb instead of the Israelites' firstborn sons. And then we see the sprinkling of the blood that prefigures the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He dies in our place. He is our Passover lamb without blemish or defect. I think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. It says this, speaking of just the time in between Christ and the Passover. So in between the exodus out of Egypt and the time of Christ. And it says this, And every priest stands daily at his office, Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So at that moment, as God states the Passover there in Egypt, and from that time on, the Passover evolved a little bit. They, they stopped taking the Passover there in their homes. They stopped killing the lamb there, and they would take the lamb to the tabernacle, or they'd take the lamb to the temple, and they would have it sacrificed there. So it, trans, it, it, tra- it changed slightly as they had a place that was theirs, and they weren't wandering in the wilderness. So at this point in time, as Jesus comes, the priest would stand and make a sacrifice on behalf of the people there in the temple. And the beautiful part, that's verse 11 in chapter 10 of Hebrews. But in verse 12, it says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Thousands, millions of sacrifices had taken place in that temple and in the tabernacle, and in the homes of the people as they wandered in the wilderness. And yet Christ makes one single sacrifice, his own life. He lays it down, and then he sits down at the right hand of God, symbolizing the fact that he is finished. There's no more work to be done. It's over. 
So Jesus wasn't some charismatic uh, victim who got caught up in the hype of stardom only, only to be martyred by the mob. No. It was a sovereign Lord who came on down to the earth to fully, uh, uh, fully intending, rather, to lay his life down. He walked into Jerusalem the day before Israel would choose their lambs. Think about that. He walks into Israel, or to Jerusalem, on the 9th, on the 10th, there to choose their lamb. And as Jesus walks in, what does Jerusalem say to him? What do they say? Hosanna. Hosanna. Just days before he'd be murdered. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's almost as if the, the, the Israelites had chosen their lamb as Jesus walked in. John said, behold the lamb of God. Jerusalem says, the Lord has blessed us. Hosanna. He's tested in that week. Moses was told by God that they were to select the lamb on the 10th. They were to test it from the 10th to the 14th. Jesus' 10th tested from the 10th to the 14th for sure. And then Josephus tells us that on the day of Passover, as the lamb would be sacrificed at 3 p.m., it says that Jesus was crucified at 3 p.m. It's a beautiful picture here. So this is all speculation. This is all just uh, coincidence. No. Before the foundation of the earth, God's plan of redemption to send the Passover lamb was already in effect. It was already in action. That Jesus, in a sense, was slain before the foundation of the world. So this wasn't some ragtag, mess up, happenstance. No. What John said, behold the lamb of God, that was true. God had sent his lamb on Passover. Our Kent Hughes sums it up well. He says this, When we look up at the cross, we see the payment that has been made for our sins. And what does God see when he looks down at the cross? He sees that it is stained with the blood of his very own firstborn son. God does not have a substitute to offer in the place of his son. His son is the substitute. And when God sees the blood of his son, he says, It is enough. My justice has been satisfied. When God sees the blood of his son, he says, it is enough. My justice has been satisfied. The price for sin is fully paid. Death will pass over you and you will be safe forever. So my last question for you this morning is this. As we consider the Passover lamb, as we consider the Passover lamb of the Old Testament, all the meanings that were tied up in that, how it foreshadowed our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. My question to you this morning is this. Has the blood of Jesus Christ been applied to your heart? Has the blood of Jesus Christ been applied to your life? You might say, well, I believe that Jesus died. Is that enough? Well, it's been said that believing that Jesus died is history. That's good. You believe in history. Believing that Jesus died for you and for your sins is salvation. Many people believe that Jesus existed. Many faiths believe that. Many, many faiths believe that Jesus died on a cross. That's just history. So my question for you this morning is, has Jesus' blood, has that been applied to your life? And if so, that is salvation. So today as a church, we're going to be taking communion. And I want to tell you right at the beginning that Taking communion together, it's a symbol and it's just for Christians. So if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you are in your journey of faith, if you're not sure where you, where you are and what your relationship with Jesus is, I would encourage you to, to just leave this, leave this table for, for those who know. 
Not, not, to, not to fence or to be rude, but this, there's nothing here to be gained if you're not a believer. There's nothing special here that's going to, you're not going to get anything new from God at this table. It's simply a, a, a symbol and a reminder, just like the Passover was for the children of Israel. So is the Lord's Supper for us. It reminds us of what God has done for us as a people. If you remember, the, the blood was smeared on the doorframe before the Passover meal was eaten. I think that's important to notice. A sacrifice would take place. The blood, before they would eat their meal, they would put, go ahead, first things first. They would make sure that they're safe, that the blood of that lamb was going to protect them as they put it on the doorpost. And then they would begin to eat. At that point in time, they needed to obey, but at that point in time, the, the work had already been done. Protection was there. And now they would just remember, they would savor the sacrifice. They would savor the, 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 the gift they had received in that lamb as they ate their meal in haste. And so if you're not a believer here today, if there's no blood applied to, your, to the, heart, the door of your heart, then I would encourage you to abstain. But if you are a Christian here today, I want to give you some instructions from the Bible on how you can take communion well. So Paul gives those instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want to read those to you. Verse 23, chapter 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Christians, when you take the bread, consider that the body of Christ was broken for you. His, his very body was broken. That He paid the price for your sins. That He endured the wrath of God, pictured in fire in the Passover. He endured that for you. The bread is a symbol of him taking all the wrath that we deserve. So there's nothing left for the Christian. Nothing left for the Christian from God except for affection, love, and grace. So as you take the bread, remember that this morning. And not only as you take the bread, but there's also the cup. And so in verse 25 it says, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this cup this morning is a covenant, uh, a relationship with God that can never be broken. As we eat this bread and as we drink from this cup, we are reminded that God's love, he's bound us to him in a way that we'll ne- we will never uh, be able to be separated from him as we memorized just a few weeks ago. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. None of our shortcomings, our mistakes, our failures, the difficulties that we face as believers, none of those things will separate us from God. Also, we, we eat with a view to the day that we'll have a joy one day of seeing him face to face. Now we, we partake of this supper together, unified but separate from Christ. The hope looking towards the day that he will come again. And one day we will partake with this feast with him together. What a joy that will be. So Christians, this morning I want to encourage you just to examine your own heart and consider the weight, the beauty of what he has done for us. With that in mind, would you pray?